Welcome to Psydactic, Residency Edition. I am Dr. O, and this is an episode that is a continuation of our series on signs of catatonia. Today, I want to deal with stupor, mutism, and negativism, which, on the surface, appear to have some overlapping features. Of all the features of catatonia that non-experts might be able to describe, stupor and mutism are likely the ones. They are also the most common signs reported in case series. A patient is not entirely unconscious, but they don't move, they stare forward, they don't talk, and they don't follow commands. But if someone is not doing anything, then they are also not talking, so mutism seems to be just a subset of stupor. Also, if someone is not doing anything, then they are also not following commands, which qualifies as negativism. And since the DSM only requires three of 12 features for a diagnosis of catatonia, the presence of stupor, because mutism and negativism are likely to be features of stupor, would almost automatically give a person a diagnosis of catatonia. This does not seem right. I could not find any good discussions about this issue, so I'm going to revert to some logic to help flesh it out. Catatonia is a problem that has a strong relationship with what's going on in your basal ganglia, the part of your brain that helps you move. It may manifest as a vast reduction in behavior, appearing stuck in some kind of behavior, or strange, non-goal-directed behavior. It may be a glutamate problem, it may be a GABA problem, and it may be related to, like, the fear response mechanism of the brain, like you're stuck in the freeze response. We know agonizing GABA receptors is highly effective in a vast majority of cases. We also know that the vast majority of cases are likely retarded or akinetic, like someone is stuck and just can't do much of anything. The signs of catatonia that most reflect this state include the signs consistent with stupor. Stupor is defined as a state of being that is short of being unconscious, like when you're comatose, sleeping, sedated, or dead. And it's characterized by very little or no interaction with the world around you. Patients may stare forward, but they may also have their eyes closed. How can you tell if someone is asleep or not? A physical exam could be helpful. Someone who's asleep should have little or no muscle tone. Someone who is asleep should still withdraw to painful stimuli. In a stuporous patient, you might be able to draw their attention briefly, but it's not sustained. For the most part, they act as if the world around them does not exist or is unimportant to them. They often don't eat, but they keep on breathing, at least until they develop malignant catatonia when even breathing may stop. Mutism, on the other hand, is defined by a very particular type of non-interaction with the world. 
for a mutism to count as a catatonic feature, it must be new onset, or a change from recent, and it must be distinguished from other known causes of mutism like seizures and strokes. While mutism is almost certainly present if someone is stuporous, being mute does not necessarily mean that you are stuporous. If a patient is mute but not stuporous, then this should be a red flag that there is a reason for their mutism other than catatonia. There are other types of mutism, such as selective mutism, which is often context-dependent. Some people go mute when they're experiencing acute distress. There are dissociative episodes, and dissociative is a word I hope to tackle in the future, that may result in mutism. Some patients with autism spectrum disorder describe an kind of avolitional intermittent mutism resulting from sensory overload or anxiety. Is this a mild form of catatonia? Can benzos also be helpful with that? It's likely that there are some shared mechanisms in the dysfunction of speech production resulting in catatonic mutism and some of the other kinds of stress or anxiety-induced mutism. Negativism, as I've mentioned in the initial episode in this series, is a thorn in my side. It can be defined as not performing a command or doing the opposite of what is commanded or requested. These are two very different things. If a patient who is sitting is asked to stand and they remain sitting, then they're not doing the opposite, or actually they are doing the opposite by simply not responding. Is that negativism? If you're lucky enough that your patient does the exact opposite of what you ask, like laying down on the floor if you ask them to stand, then that would be nice. I think the key to negativism is that it appears motiveless to the examiner, kind of like stereotypes are motiveless. On the other hand, someone who appears to be able to follow commands but refuses to follow commands because they have a motive not to do so, like to avoid noxious stimulus or because they're sick of being stuck with a needle or something like that, should not be counted as negativism. One test that might be helpful is to attempt to move the patient. Instead of giving an even resistance like they would in, say, waxy flexibility, they'll increase their muscle tone in resistance to your efforts. For example, imagine this. When you try to flex your patient's arm, they initiate resistance when you initiate the movement, and then they relax when you relax. Overall, their problem is not that their baseline tone is increased, but if you try to examine them, their tone increases in opposition to your efforts. I think that would qualify as negativism. So let's revisit the at least three features criteria in the DSM and how the overlap of stupor, mutism, and negativism may seem redundant.
If a patient is stuporous, then they're not doing things or saying things, though they may be maintaining a posture or have waxy flexibility. Because stupor, in a way, disqualifies them from other criteria by default, they need a leg up on getting a diagnosis according to the rules set out in the DSM. So to make it easier to qualify stuporous patients for a diagnosis of catatonia and get them treatment, mutism can be present with stupor. Given that they won't meet so many of the other criteria because they're not interacting with the world, having some overlapping symptom criteria may not be a bad thing. In some case series, I've read that about 97% of patients are stuporous. Also, as a clinician who has a stuporous patient with a high suspicion of catatonia, you may not want to get too picky about counting the other symptoms and just give an Ativan challenge to see if you can give them a chance to actually interact with the world again. It's a reasonable approach in a world with limited time and resources. I hope to finish out the series on catatonia within the next couple of episodes. Thank you for your patience with me as I'm slow getting these out. I am Dr. Rowe, and this has been an episode of Sidactic Residency Edition.